Welcome to San Diego Sessions, episode lucky number 13. We're in studio today with our special guest, saxophonist Les Arbuckle. San Diego Sessions, San Diego's jazz podcast, featuring local artists, new releases, and more. Here are your hosts, Ian Tordella and Ed Kornhauser. Welcome this week to San Diego Sessions. I'm your host, Ed Kornhauser, and I'm joined in the studio today by my esteemed colleague, uh, saxophonist, composer, and intranational man of mystery, Ian Tordella. You're very mysterious. And we're here in the studio today with uh, saxophonist uh, Les Arbuckle. Good morning. Good morning. How's, <laughs> how's it going? Good. How are you? So far, so good. Yeah, the, it's, a good it's a beautiful uh, overcast day. Fall is finally here. And uh, I don't hear the leaf blowers yet, so I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have our usual segment for the top of the show. I have some pressing questions some grievances some issues to press, address with, press and grieve and address away with ed kornhauser this is called this versus that okay first one it's a piano question pianist cecil taylor or recently deceased piano player john taylor hmm i'm gonna go with for for innovative Ness is that a word? Innovativeness uh, and body of work. I'm going to go with Cecil Taylor. Okay, that was the wrong answer, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, zing. you're down negative ten. Oh wow, no. that's harsh. That's okay, harsh. I'll give it. It's a hard one. I know. I'll give I, it to I Cecil like, Taylor. I like Cecil Taylor. I like him too. Okay, all right. Next one. This is in the read the read section. Just going clarinetist and saxophonist Eddie Daniels or hmm. saxophonist. Eddie Harris. Oh boy, uh, two names I—I <laughs> I was about to say two names I don't like, but as an Edward, I don't like the name Eddie. Uh, it always makes me trying to makes me sound like I'm trying to sell you a car. Uh, <laughs> what uh, do you think, Eddie? Which one do you choose? I'm gonna go with. Um, even though I think when I was growing up, I listened to more Eddie Harris, uh, but I think let now I'm I'm much more partial to Eddie Daniels. Yeah. But growing up, I listened to a lot of Eddie Harris. Actually, I saw a great clip on YouTube of the Vanguard band. It's in black and white, and Thad Jones is conducting. It's right around 1970, and there's like a tenor battle between Joe Henderson and, and Eddie Daniels. Oh, wow. And it's, it's incredible. That's interesting. Yeah, and Thad is just like egging him on. It's pretty right, funny. Right. Okay, last one, number three. Uh, pianist, Kenny Barron. Or trumpet player Kenny Dorham. I mean, that's I think for me that's kind of a that's a low ball. I mean, yeah, I'm gonna a go softball. With softball. That's what I mean. Yeah, softball. I'm gonna go with Kenny Barron. His his playing, his approach, his uh, his compositions, which are all great. I love his tunes. I've I played a lot of his lot of his tunes. And all right. 
It's it's him and Stan Getz on People Time, right? Yeah, right, of course, yeah. People Time. That's my favorite duet record. I don't know why suddenly I blanked on that. Suddenly I, it's something in the morning. I haven't had enough coffee yet. Uh, yeah, it's my favorite duo record, I think, of all time. I love the way they play together. Did they do a second duo record? Am I completely wrong about that? Mm, I think they did. I don't yeah. remember it, but uh, yeah. yeah, the silent killer, they call him. Yeah. Do they, I could, <laughs> he, I, he, he doesn't talk. He doesn't make small talk. Hi, Kenny. Hi. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that'll, that'll tie Good. perfectly into our uh, first segment here. We're going to yeah. play something from Les Arbuckle's first record. And this one actually features Kenny Barron Yo. and Cecil McBee and John Ramsey on drums. So, And this tune is called No More, No Less, the title tune from this record. Thank you. 
All right, we're back in studio today with our special guest, saxophonist and author, Les Arbuckle, who uh, lives in Carlsbad. But this recording, No More, No Less, was from 1994 when you were out in Boston, correct? That's right, Boston, Mass. Yeah. And Les, we're going to talk a little bit about this record, and then you also have a brand new book you put out called Saigon Kids. Yep. Yeah. Saigon Kids. But on this, we mentioned uh, Kenny Barron, Cecil McBee, and John Ramsey were on that track. And you're just telling us that you got hooked up with the label and you put this whole record together with a, a rehearsal. Like- yeah, the whole thing came together with one rehearsal the night before for about an hour and a half, which was barely enough time just to run down the heads. And uh, when you're in a situation like that where you don't have a chance to rehearse and fine-tune the feel of each tune, things are sound different than what you were thinking and you have to adjust your thinking, and you got about 18 hours to do that. 18 hours after the rehearsal till you meet in the studio to think about it and then hope that things go a little differently and that you can get closer to what you were thinking. But that ain't the way it works. Unless you're playing with the band a lot, it's going to come off much, much different than what you were, were planning. It's like they say, uh, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, and, and plus, AudioQuest uh, recorded this live to analog, not digital. Mm. So there was no overdubbing. Uh, they spliced one tune. Just to, uh, I'm not even sure why, but there was no overdubbing, and they wanted a warts and all approach. Yeah, you know, like we're going to do a couple of takes, and then we're getting that's it. You that's know? great. Wow. That's it's like uh, it's. It, it's great, but on the other hand, I would have liked to have five or ten takes on each tune and right. do it over a period of six months like the rock and roll guys. I, I, feel, that, I feel that way, too. I always like to like make sure everything's like absolutely perfect. Right. And, I, and uh, like when I've recorded with the trio with Matt Smith, it's always I always like to re-rehearse and rehearse and rehearse right. and really fine-tune yeah. things. We're open to exploring new directions right. in the studio if need be, but like have a be super comfortable. We'd all play together for years, let right. alone just... 90 minutes. Right. So, and I, I had never met Kenny Barron before this. Oh, wow. And I knew Cecil B. a little bit from uh, New England Conservatory. He was one of the people that uh, suggested to AudioQuest that they listen to the demo tape I sent, which they did. But uh, to be honest with you, I thought I played better on the demo tape because I was playing with friends. We had time to rehearse. Very relaxed scene. You know, wasn't going to put it out as a CD to everybody and their dog. So, uh, you know, of course, in that situation, it's like playing at a bar mitzvah or a wedding. You know, you're playing Misty, and you play the best solo you've ever played, ever, and nobody's listening. Mm. Nobody cares. That's exactly why it was your best solo ever, because you didn't care either. Huh. Right. That's that's cool. (laughs) It's definitely a tree falls in the forest kind of a moment. Yeah. As you said, this was all live to two-track. Yeah, and there was no editing, but no editing. No. Uh, yeah, the fun thing when there is no rehearsal, sometimes you get in there and it has to be more sp- spontaneous. Yeah, um, yeah, because you have no choice. <laughs> well, AudioQuest <laughs> so, is an audiophile label. At that time, uh, they were still making vinyl, and this record is also available on vinyl, Virgin Premium Vinyl. It says on the cover. So uh, you know, it, it was they, they they make high end audio cables. Audio quest. They still do, but they they don't record jazz anymore. Because let's face it, there's no money in it. You know, there's a lot more money in selling a five hundred dollar mic cable. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Gold plated, you know, that kind of thing. So 
Nice. Well, let's touch on your uh, new book, and then we'll listen to some more tunes. Um, but you have a, a brand new book out. It's available on Amazon. And Barnes and & Noble. Noble. It's and, in the stores. Uh, wow. That's... It's called Saigon Kids, an American Military Brat Comes of Age in 1960s Vietnam. Yeah, if yeah. you remember the movie uh, Good Morning Vietnam, uh, Robin Williams played Adrian Cronauer, who was the host of a show called The Dawnbuster Show in Saigon in 1965. My father was the person who created the radio station at the B- at the request of the Pentagon, and uh, The Dawnbuster Show was his show. So by all accounts, my father was probably the first person to say on the air in Saigon, Good morning, Vietnam. I don't think he said it like Robin Williams, you know, but uh, he started the station in 1962 and ran it alone, all the programming by himself for three months. And we came over about six months, you know, after he had started the station, lived there for 18 months. And that was when things were starting to, the, the feces was starting to hit the air circulating device in Saigon. It had been hitting it quite a bit, actually, for years, but it was... There were Buddhist demonstrations daily against the government uh, of Noden Zim, who uh, had been persecuting the Buddhists. Probably not a good idea in a country that's 80% Buddhist, and he was Catholic. Hmm. And there were riots and demonstrations daily. And uh, then there were the Viet Cong terror bombings. So wherever you went in Saigon, you were about one second away from having a problem. And sometimes some, some of those problems could be very severe, so you had to be careful. But I was 14 years old, and I knew that I was immortal, and nobody could ever kill me, <laughs> not me. My mother didn't know that, however, and she was a nervous wreck the whole time we were there. 18 months, boy, that was yeah. been hard. So between the terror yeah. bombings and uh, the freedom that we had as 14-year-olds, which is the kind of freedom you never want to give your kids, uh, I had a pretty good time. I loved living in Saigon. <laughs> And just to relate it to music, also, were you playing saxophone at the time when you were Yeah, 14? I had barely started playing saxophone, and uh, there was no place—I didn't own a saxophone. There was no place to get one. Turns out my friend, who I call Bob Harding in the book, his father had an old Busher aristocrat alto in beautiful condition, and he didn't play anymore. He had played it in college, and Bill let me borrow it. So my first experience with saxophone repair was the octave key wasn't quite closing enough. Mm. So I gave it a gentle bend and promptly snapped it in half. Ah. So I got five, started off on the rough on got a rough started foot. off on the wrong foot. I figured his dad would probably kill us both. So Jeez. we took it downtown to the jewelers and they fixed it so you couldn't even tell it had ever been broken. Wow. And that was the saxophone I played until we left. So, so your your father ran the uh, AFRS Armed, yeah, Forces, Armed Forces, Forces Radio Station. I had yeah. to think about how to yeah, say that. Yeah. Um what kind of music did he play on the on the air? Played everything. Mm. The uh, the station was for all the military, all the Americans there, Foreign Service, Diplomatic Corps, military brats. So he had to play something for everybody. And my favorite show was the one that came on at 4 o'clock every day, which was the Sounds of the 60s. Mm. And that's where you could hear the latest, latest stuff from the States, which, you know, being Americans, having no TV and very few sources for news or culture or arts— we craved that stuff, as most teenagers do. So at 4 o'clock every day, I'd sit down next to the radio for an hour and hear the Beach Boys and whoever. But I remember one day walking through into the house and hearing this guy uh, playing guitar and whistling. 
And I listened to it, and I thought it was pretty cool. And it turns out that was Toots Steelman's oh, yeah. playing Bluesette, you know. And uh, I didn't think much about it until many years later when I started playing Bluesette and heard the original. I said, that's it. I know that. Yeah. 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 Oh. But he, he played big band hits, easy listening, country and western. He was My dad was a bebopper, you mm. know. So if he would have had his way, he would have played... You know, Duke and Charlie Parker wall to wall, but he had he he knew enough to to you know he had been in the business long enough to know that he he had to have something for everyone. Did he uh, did he play music himself? He played drums. There's a picture of him in the book with his trio in Saigon, an American piano player and a Vietnamese bass player. There were some good Vietnamese musicians around. Then I I remember seeing a saxophone player who I don't talk about in the book at one of our high school dances in a Vietnamese combo. And he had the most beautiful silver and gold tenor I had ever laid eyes on. I just stood in front of him for a while. I was mesmerized. I didn't even remember what he sounded like. That tenor was gorgeous. <laughs> wow. You yeah. Know? But, uh, you know, usually at the school dances, it'd be uh, the record player playing, you know, uh, Four Seasons or whoever. Yeah. Well, talking about the radio, we have a friend in town. Do you know Long, the tenor yes. player? Or yeah. There's a saxophone player in town named Long who's from Vietnam, and he, he got familiar with jazz through American radio right. in Vietnam. And yeah, I guess that, that to some extent, the radio was a weapon of propaganda tell, tell, yeah, bringing it, American music over there. Yeah, it was. Yeah. American music, uh, as the Russians always felt, American music and jazz in particular was just jazz, was just music propaganda, you know, it, promoting I mean, the capitalist way. Our, our music and our is sort of our biggest cultural export, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For better or for worse. I think in, in jazz, I think for better, but sometimes uh, other kinds, maybe not so much. Yeah, my dad used to work all the hotels downtown. That was his other gig, you know. He probably had the most popular trio, you know, working at that time. You know, there weren't a whole lot of American musicians working in Saigon at that time. So, mm-hmm. And he had, uh, when he was a kid, he took lessons with Gene Krupa in New York, you know, and went to the NBC radio school. He was from Manhattan, so, you know, it was a... Uh, an interesting place to be for a musician. As as U.S. involvement um, escalated, how did that affect uh, the music scene in Saigon? Were there more musicians? Were there more more or less clubs? Or uh, the club? There were clubs in Saigon. There was one I remember going, trying to go to when we were fourteen. There, we snuck out one night, and about twelve thirty, one o'clock, we went to a club called what else? Moulin Rouge which was just a Vietnamese version of the one in France. With the windmill and everything? Right, and we walked in the door, and we stood there for a few minutes until they saw us and threw us out. But the band was playing Beatle hits. It was an all-Vietnamese band playing Beatle tunes, and they were playing I Want to Hold Your Hand and stuff like that. And uh, with with the Vietnamese accent, you know, they uh, didn't quite have it down yet. But there were clubs like that around Saigon. We kind of avoided those because if the GIs saw us, we knew they'd throw us out immediately. Mm. But most of the time, you could go into a bar, and if you could walk in and slap some money on the table, you could, you could get a beer if you were 14, mm. or cigarettes, and you know just about anything else you wanted. If you know, we, we didn't mess with dope because we didn't even know what it was at the time. But uh, it was a wide open town for a 14 year old. I bet. And were were there as like more U.S. service personnel came? Were there more musicians, American musicians coming in? Or? Well, 
as the war escalated, I, I ended up in the Army Band at Fort Monroe, Virginia, and oh. I knew there were five Army Bands in Vietnam. I'm not sure how many Marine Bands, Air Force Bands, or Navy Bands there were, but there were five Army Bands, and most of them were out in the field up north in Da Nang or Pleiku or Natrong, wherever. But uh, they'd play honor guards and you know various services and stuff. And then when they were off, they'd load sandbags and pull guard. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, that didn't start happening. I think till uh, the war really escalated, which was '65. Yeah. By that time, I was gone. Right, and the Tet Offensive was, I think, '68. '68. Yeah. Yeah. And I joined the army on October 3rd, 1968. Yes, the quote from your your website, which I quite liked, is, "Yeah, you avoided the draft by joining the army." Yeah, I, I tricked those bastards. <laughs> you know, my draft notice. I joined on October 3rd. On October 4th. When I got to Richmond to be inducted, I called, called home, and my mother said, your draft notice arrived. So I, I beat the draft by one day. Whew. So. <laughs> well, as we hear in the background, my lawn guy has arrived. Right on schedule. The leaf blowers are here. <laughs> uh, well, again, the book, Les's book is called Saigon Kids, and you can get it through Barnes & Noble or on Amazon. And uh, I think we're going to continue with some more music. We're going to go back to your other record, which features guitar instead of piano. Multiple guitars, actually. And this this record is called The Bush Crew, but it features two of my favorite guitarists, John Abercrombie and Mike Stern, in a band with Victor Lewis. The Bush Crew title has nothing to do with Bush, George Bush, or, I figured, yeah. or his dad. It has to do with the <laughs> bass player, Essiet Essiet, ah. and the drummer... Victor Lewis, Lewis, who yeah. were joking with each other, calling each other Bushman. That's what Victor liked to call Essiet because Essiet's father was from Africa. Huh. You know? And he used to call him Bushman. You know, hey, Bushman. You know, I said, well, what are we going to call this band here? He says, how about the Bush Crew? That works. <laughs> you know? And later he had a, a band in New York called the Intercontinental Bush Orchestra. <laughs> Very politically so, correct. Yes. Yeah. Essiet, he was one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> the only bass player I've seen. Actually, crack up an audience with his solo. He at at the Regatta Bar in Boston with Elvin Jones. He had a bass solo. He had the audience rolling on the floor with quotes. Oh wow! You know, just quoting little things, and it sneaked them in at the oddest times. And it was it was amazing. Actually, it was. He's a character. Yeah. I, m- I met him briefly a couple of like I think it was maybe a year or two ago. Yeah, at Bar Pink of all places. Oh yeah. <laughs> He was. I was watching Harley playing, and, and Harley got off, and so they recognized him, and uh, just about lost it. <laughs> wow! So, and this has Mike Stern on it too, and you've known yeah. Mike Stern for quite a while. Yeah, I met him at Berkeley in '74, uh, I think, when he was first there, and uh, he had been in private schools up in private art schools up in Massachusetts. He's from Washington D.C. He's a he's a D.C. boy, but uh, when he first came to Boston, he. he he was a decent rock and roll player, but uh, jazz-wise, he, he had had no clue like the rest of us, <laughs> you know. But uh, he started studying with Charlie Bonacus, and yeah. he, he got good real quick. And uh, it, it was his, his rock and roll playing helped him open some doors, I think, that if he had been a stone-cold bebopper, wouldn't have been opened, mm. you know, because Miles, Miles wanted to hear that rock and roll stuff. He, he didn't want you to play in a lot of bop licks, you know. Yeah. And Stern fit perfectly into that that category. So how did this session come together with, with 
both guitarists then? Well, um, as per uh, the standard practice at the time, we had an hour and a half rehearsal the day before. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. I'm and sensing a so theme that, here. That's it is. twice as many rehearsals as uh, you know doing a record on Columbia back in the day. Oh, yeah, Columbia. Guys just show up. But the difference is those guys were playing all the time. And with each other frequently, so they, they frequently knew what they were getting into. Right. Yeah, that's Whereas, true. Whereas uh, we were not playing. I had never played with uh, John Abercrombie before or okay. Essiet or Victor, and only a little bit with Mike, and that was a long time ago. You did, um, did you get to do much playing after the recording as, a, no, as an ensemble? No. The, this was before the internet, and uh-huh. I, I did not have the wherewithal or the desire to really pursue uh, going on the road. You know, I, with, with these records, I probably could have by hook or by crook, made a, a small career for myself as a jazz player, going on the road 30, 40 weeks a year, living in crap hotels, eating crap food, traveling on crap airline flights, and uh, I'd be dead now. Yeah. You know? and so I, you would have done it for the money, that's what you're saying? Just if, there were, if I could have traveled comfortably, <laughs> you know. But the, the reason so many of those guys die young is from being on the road all the time. No matter how good you are about eating on the road, sometimes you just have to eat what's there. And no matter how good you are about exercising, sometimes it's hard when when you get into the hotel at three in the afternoon and you're exhausted and the gig's at eight and you got to get some sleep. What are you going to do? Go to the gym? Probably not, you know. So I I figured out at that time that if I wanted to live, I was going to have to just stop trying to be a jazz star. Because, you know, unless you're incredible enough that you can go without playing for three or four days, pick up the horn and burn, you're going to have a hard, hard time of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know guys who are out there and they're still doing it. And uh, unless you make the big bucks or get the big accolades or something, uh, there's not a whole lot of reward in it. You know, mm-hmm. What was the motivation? Because I, I know you've experimented with this concept as well, the double guitar thing. You've both done the double guitar recording session. What's the what was the motivation behind? Well, that? I had mentioned to Joe Harley that you know he said who, who would you like to use on this? So I said uh, I used to play guitar when I was a kid, so I thought I'd, real, I'd love to. Use, and you know I played with a lot of guitar players too, Joe Cohn and Randy Johnson, variety, you know John Wheatley, a whole mess of people. So I thought thought well it'd be be great to get Mike Stern or John Abercrombie. Joe said, well why don't we get both? Hmm. And I said, yeah. Okay, so we That's figured we'd do yeah. some of the record with John, some of the record with Mike, and then have a couple of tunes where they're together. And they had played together a lot. Really? You know? huh. So they, they knew each other pretty well. Because they have a very different approach. Very different, you know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but very musical, you know, very different. And uh, they they get along good, you know, so everything worked out, and we did it with two guitars. Excellent. Well, let's hear this track. This is called Bella Donnelly, and again, it's from Les Arbuckle's record, The Bush Crew. This, this is what you might call a contrafact, or it's, it's a head written on the changes to Donna Lee. Comes, the, the melody comes from my uh, listening to Bella Bartok a lot and uh, the way he moves triads around and certain harmonic structures. And I composed this with those in mind. And it, the phraseology of this, the phrases follow the same phraseology, phrase, phrase length of Donna Lee. But the lines are uh, very different and kind of difficult to sing if you try. Dare I say it's a Bella Bird talk? Bella Bird talk. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Very punny. (laughs) 
listening to San Diego Sessions. Subscribe on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. This is Mandy Joe, and here's your jazz forecast for November 5th through the 12th. Sunday, November 5th, the Whitney Shea Quartet plays on the patio at the Bernardo Winery in Rancho Bernardo, playing some high-energy jazz and blues from 2 to 5. Vocalist Leonard Patton and pianist Ed Kornhauser play their monthly first Sunday engagement at the Turf Supper Club in Golden Hill from 8 to 11 p.m. No cover and 21 and up. Monday, November 6th. The Danny Green Trio plays a free noontime concert at the Athenaeum Music and Arts Library in La Jolla, featuring Justin Grinnell on bass and Julian Cantelm on drums. All ages are welcome. Guitarist Louis Valenzuela hosts his regular Monday night jam session at Rosie O'Grady's in Normal Heights from 9 p.m. to midnight. No cover, and it's 21 and up. Tuesday, November 7th. Pianist and composer Matt Harris performs as the special guest with the San Diego State Jazz Ensemble for two concerts at 5 and 7 p.m. in Smith Recital Hall at SDSU. Tickets are $20 for general admission, $15 for military or seniors, and $10 for students. These concerts are dedicated to Pitt and Virginia Werner. Jazz 88 presents Jazz Live with acclaimed trombonist Scott Whitfield as he brings his quintet to the Seville Theater on the City College campus, featuring Ira Nepis on trombone, Jeff Colella on piano, Jennifer Lytham on bass, and Kendall Kay on drums. If you can't make it, listen from home on Jazz 88.3 FM. Wednesday, November 9th. Trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos hosts his regular Wednesday night jam session at Panama 66. Listen to the best jazz San Diego has to offer right in the middle of Balboa Park. Music is from 8.30 to 11.30 p.m. You can drop by early to see the Young Lions play from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring up-and-coming musicians from around the city. Thursday, November 9th. Singer and guitarist Steph Johnson plays at Panama 66 from 6 to 8 p.m., along with vibraphonist Matt DiBiase, and there's no cover. 
The Rob Thorson Trio plays a concert at Cuyamaca College Theater at 7.30 p.m., featuring Hugo Suarez on piano and Richard Sellers on drums. $8 general admission and $5 for students. Friday, November 10th, guitarist Peter Sprague, saxophonist Trip Sprague, and bassist Mackenzie Layton play at the Hanlery Hotel in Hotel Circle from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. No cover and your parking is validated. The Friday Happy Hour is a regular series put on by Holly Hoffman, so stay tuned for more great jazz. The Zim Z Quartet plays gypsy jazz at Panama 66 from 7 to 9 p.m. The Steph Johnson Trio plays at Boré Southern Bistro from 7 to 10 p.m. L.A. saxophonist Charles Owens plays at Dizzy's, featuring guitarist Bob Boss, bassist Marshall Hawkins, and drummer Richard Sellers. Music is at 8 p.m. and there's a $20 cover. Gilbert Castellanos presents Jazz at the Westgate from 8 to 11 p.m. in the lobby bar of the Westgate Hotel. There's no cover. Saturday, November 11th. Vocalist Lorraine Castellanos joins guitarist Bob Boss at Harvest by the Patio in East Village at 6 p.m. Vocalist Whitney Shea brings her quartet to La Valencia Hotel in La Jolla from 6 to 10 p.m. There's no cover and all ages are welcome. At Panama 66, LA's Western Standard Time Ska Orchestra plays big band arrangements of early first-wave ska from Jamaica. The Mokilero All-Stars open at 7 p.m., and Western Standard Time starts at 9 p.m. Tickets are $15 in advance and $20 at the door. Allison Adams Tucker brings pianist Hugo Suarez and bassist Rob Thorson to the Plaza Bar in the Westgate Hotel. Music is from 8 to 11 p.m., no cover, and all ages are welcome. Sunday, November 12th. The Mandy Joe Project plays at Public Square Coffee House in La Mesa, featuring Mandy on keys and vocals, Ricky Giordano on guitar, Kevin Cooper on bass, and Abe Majors on drums. Doors are at 6 p.m., there's a $10 cover, and all ages are welcome. Steph Johnson and Rob Thorson open the night at 6.15, so get there early. Tap dancer Claudia Gomez brings her group Soul Collective to Panama 66 from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring Gabriel Sundy, Ivana Wasinski, and Danica Molinar. Sassy Sunday with Lorraine Castellanos and pianist Hugo Suarez at the Turf Supper Club from 8 to 11 p.m. No cover and it's 21 and up. You're listening to San Diego Sessions, San Diego's jazz podcast. And we're back with Les Arbuckle for our weekly segment, The San Diego Seven. These are seven rapid-fire questions that we'd like you to answer from the top of your head and the bottom of your heart. <laughs> there are some are musical, uh, some are less musical. Can I talk to my lawyer first? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. I'm sure you've got a month's speed down. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what that meant, actually. I just wanted to say it. I do. Uh, number one, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had eggs and hash brown potatoes and a banana. That's that's a that's a balanced breakfast. That is. I just had a banana. That's it. That's why you're thinner than me. Uh, <laughs> number two, what's the first album you can remember owning, jazz or otherwise? Probably the Beach Boys, Surfing USA. Ah, yeah. And it had a profound effect on you. It did. Yeah, I still love that record. <laughs> Unless it is a surfer too. So Dude, he's out there with Peter Sprague. That's right, shredding it up. Yeah. This, this is a random this is a random total tangent, but I noticed the cover of Pet Sounds that was shot at the San Diego Zoo. 
Ah, you I ever did notice not that? Know that? If you look there I in front of the giraffe enclosure, and that part still looks exactly the same. I like it better now. Yeah, they 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 did the shoot there. Um, number three, what was your first ever gig? The first gig I ever played is chronicled in my book, Saigon Kids. Ah. It was in Vietnam in 1963, I believe. And it was for a Vietnamese-American ladies' luncheon. We played two tunes. The band consisted of drums, guitar, saxophone, and trombone. The two tunes were tequila and cherry pink and apple blossom white. We didn't get paid. Oh, well, but two tunes, that's an, that's an easy gig. That's it's an easy gig. Yeah, you spend more time setting up than you do playing. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Number four. If countries settled their differences in ways other than war, what would be the best method? The way the Bonobos do. Oh, yeah. That, I know that way. Yeah, you know that way. Yeah, I know that way. That would probably be the best way. It might, we might not want to talk about it in the podcast. No, we probably shouldn't no, talk about but it. but I know that way. No, that, that is one they, of the ways. They do it a lot when they're stressed, when they're freaked out. When, when they yeah. say hello, when they say goodbye, yeah, when they same. eat lunch, when they eat dinner. You yeah, know? exactly. It's, it's insane. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can all Google right. that, all, all, the, all you folks at home. Number eight. Number eight. This is, a, this is the San Diego 7. Wow. What's next? <laughs> Number five. In terms of tone, what saxophone has had a strong impact on your sound? Oh, Coltrane. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I uh, grew up hearing uh, Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, King Curtis. But when I heard Coltrane, uh, that changed everything I thought I knew about saxophone completely. And I realized there you don't have to sound like Coleman Hawkins or, uh, you know, Ben Webster, or the, the older guys, you know, uh, Charlie Ventura, Stan Getz, you know. Mm. There's another way to sound, and it's a more modern way, you know. Coltrane's, Coltrane was the first, what I call, postmodern saxophonist, you know. So it had a great influence on me and everybody else who picked up a saxophone in the 60s. Right, yeah. He, he was definitely one of those guys where there was before him and then there was after him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. Parker the same way. That was before yep. Parker and after Parker. Right, and both of them were, were disliked intensely by a lot of people, you know, because they they represented something new and foreign and strange and unusual. And some people, they just wanted to hear the same old, same old. And I understand that because now I'm that way. <laughs> but yeah. my same old, same old is, is different than their same old, same old, yeah. you know? Another odd thing is both of them at the time, Bird and Coltrane, had a, a sound that people considered strident. Right, right. People were used to that soft uh, Johnny Hodges type of sound with the big vibrato, you know, and the big lush tenor sound with a foo-foo here and a foo-foo there. Yeah, which is a great know. sound, yeah. And Coltrane came <laughs> along and there was no more foo-foo and Bird came along and foo-foo had gone bye-bye. So, uh, yeah, things changed. Uh, not speaking of a strident shift, uh, number six, is a hot dog a sandwich? Yes. <laughs> Boom. Easy. Number seven. That's a new one. Now we're getting into the, the food section. Yes. Number seven. This is our standby. We ask this every week. Bacon? No. No? Okay. I love it. Oh, but no. Wait. I don't eat it. Okay. But I love it. Okay, that's an interesting one. Yeah. We, we, we had a no and a yes at the same my, time. My mother's side of the family is from Texas. So bacon, beef, fried chicken, those are health foods in Texas, you know. So I love bacon. I love fried chicken. I just don't eat it because mm. I know it'll kill me. 
Fair play. I want to live. I want to live. <laughs> Fair play. Okay, that's a that's a good honest answer. I like it. Yeah. So again, for our listeners, we're here with Les Arbuckle. Uh, but Les, maybe you could well, you could talk a little bit about your relationship to San Diego and our music scene here. Um, we mentioned we we're talking before the show. You were here, and I know you, Mark Dresser was also in town at the same time in the the late '80s, and then also you've been in SD on and off for the past decade, I guess. Um, and now you you work a lot as a saxophone repairman as well, too. That's right. The uh, I moved here in 1987 because I was tired of Boston. Uh, it was cold, and mm-hmm. the winters were about six months long. And I wanted to surf, and I wanted to be somewhere where there were gigs. And I moved here, and the, I think the first day or two I got here, I called Benny Holman, mm. who was a contractor in, in San Diego. And I said, Benny, my name's Les Arbuckle. Uh, I got your phone number from Hal Crook. And uh, I, I, he had me working immediately. At the time, they had just finished up a gig at the La Costa Country Club, where they had a big band gig five nights a week for a year. Wow. At the La Costa Country Club. A big band Nice. Five nights a week. Probably the last one of those that has ever happened in the United States. You know, where have you heard? A, a paid gig. This was a real gig. Wow. I believe it was a union gig. But they were there five nights a week for a full year. Guys were buying houses and cars, you know, mm. paying off their mortgage and stuff. They were working. Jeez. And the saxophone players I knew then, uh, Frank LaMarca, Joe say. Murillo, Benny Holman, yeah. Gary Lefebvre, they're all dead now. They're all gone. You know, so uh, the scene has changed quite a bit. Uh, another saxophone player I knew then who was a very good player, Paul Sunfer, doesn't play anymore. Mm. And uh, it's it's just a, oh, it's changed you know, it's, a lot. Yeah. It's changed quite a bit. You know, the, the guys I knew were gone except for Peter Sprague and a few others. Uh, but it's changed a lot. And there was a lot more work for me then. I, I, I did shows at Shelter Island. I did the San Diego Symphony. Uh, the casinos had not started up then, so yeah. But when I was here back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, Benny had me working uh, some of the casinos and stuff. He had just, I think that was right before he got sick. That's you interesting because both of us have played with Benny, and when I first yeah. got in town, I was I was like the the young guy in the right. band. Okay, you know, yeah. occasionally he'd have me on gigs, but but that's how I got hooked up with yeah. with uh, Gary Lefevre right. and Frank Lamarca right. who were both really cool to me Gary, Gary yeah. used to always say oh what mouthpiece is that or whatever yeah. which is yeah. um he called me Ian uh-huh. Ian what mouthpiece are you using but <laughs> yeah. it was great to like get to sit with those guys it would be like Steve Steinberg Gary Lefevre and um and Frank and Frank yeah and, and Benny would play right um but I was definitely a low low man on the totem pole there. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the new guy in town yeah yeah Everybody gets to be the new guy in town in San Diego because everybody's from somewhere else. Yeah. It, it Just is, about. It is a bit true. We're mostly a town of yeah. transplants. I sort of am. Where are you from? Well, I was. I basically am from here. I was born in Providence. Rhode Island? Yeah. But I moved out here with Forget my mom when about I was it. one and a half. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm from here. Basically. Yeah, I used to work in Providence a lot, too. It was, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I don't know the. I I mean, I left when I was an infant, and right. uh, so I don't know anything about the music scene out there. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so as you mentioned, there was a lot of work uh, around that time, late '80s, early '90s. But um, as the work declined, you got into uh, another stream of income. And I can mention to our listeners, you're a very fine saxophone repairman, the saxophone repairman of choice. 
Thank for, you, dude. Uh, the Ian Tordella studio. Uh, let me get the check out here. I got yeah. a check right here for you. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, yeah, so you're getting the SDSB, the San Diego Sessions bump. Well, I started repairing because I got tired of teaching. Hmm. You know, I can make a saxophone do what I want most of the time, but making a student do what you want, well, it's it's funny how they frown on things like whips and chains these days. You know, it's it's just kind of sad. But you can use your your torture tools on the actual horns. Actually, the horns don't complain effect. when I use the whips and chains, and they work. Yeah, they, they work. work. They work excellent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Nothing like a whip on a Mark VI. Uh, how did you go about learning the the trade of, of saxophone repair? Well, the first thing I did was buy a lot of tools. Hmm. And then I worked by myself, you know, just reading various books. And uh, after about uh, six or eight months of frustration, I called Ernie Sola in Boston, who was the top repairman, and went over and took some lessons with him. That changed everything. And then uh, about a year later, I went out to Iowa and worked with Randy Jones in his shop out in Iowa. And a, a lot of it is common sense, and uh, there's a lot of problem solving. And if you don't know somebody, uh, I would call Ernie or Randy and talk to them. And, you know, after a while, it gets to the point where you've seen just about everything, mm. you know, if not everything. There's always something new because people sometimes get it in their heads that they want to fix it. So, oh boy. And they will come up with solutions that you never would have thought of. So, so I get <laughs> I those horns a too. Bit of sarcasm. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've seen some pretty weird stuff, but uh, but you know, it's not rocket science, and uh, saxophone is not a precision instrument the way uh, instruments are that are you know like medical instruments or instruments made out of steel. You can't get the tolerances out of brass that you can get out of steel. So, a saxophone is more a work of art than it is uh, precision. So every saxophone, even the modern ones, will be a little bit different from every other one. Uh, in the old days, there was even more difference because the machining and the tools and the repairmen uh, were on a not, not quite as high a level uh, of consistency as they are today. But on the other hand, in the old days, the instruments uh, derived some of their personality from the person who put it together mm. and the way it was soldered together and how many glasses of wine they had with lunch <laughs> and uh, did they leave it sitting over the weekend in this condition or that condition? Who chose the neck for this instrument and how many glasses of wine did he have with lunch? <laughs> so it, it, it made a big difference and it still does. So it's, it's not a precision instrument. Each, has, each saxophone has a personality and you have to find a personality that agrees with your personality, whatever that is. And if you can do that, you'll be happy. If you can't, you'll be in hell. Yeah. Well, again, for our listeners, we're here with, with saxophonist, saxophone repairman, and author, Les Arbuckle. Um, but Les, getting back to your, your book, Saigon Kids, you're going to be at Barnes & Noble, a couple local Barnes & Nobles signing copies. and uh, Right. I believe uh, November 11th, I'm going to be at Barnes & Nobles in Oceanside, and probably in the early afternoon, signing copies. You can check on their events calendar at Barnes & Nobles. It should be on there in a few days. Uh, then on the 18th, I'll be at uh, Mira Mesa, Barnes & Nobles, for an author event where I'll speak and you know read a little bit from the book and talk about it. And sign copies for all you uh, autograph hounds. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I was at uh, the Encinitas Barnes & Nobles last weekend and Temecula and up in Riverside, and I'm just waiting for Oprah to call. You know, please, Oprah, <laughs> baby. Oprah, if you're out there, yeah. you know? if you're listening. 
Uh, so yeah, November 11th, Barnes and Noble Oceanside, or November 18th in Mira Mesa. And if you're astute, also you can catch Les Arbuckle around the San Diego music scene playing the tenor saxophone. And we're about to hear some more tenor saxophone. Our last tune is a rose on Del Ave, or it's just called Rose on Del Ave, and this is from the Bush Crew, featuring Mike Stern and John Abercrombie. Um, but again, Les, we want to thank you so much for coming down and. And rapping with us. Yes, thank Thanks you very much. Thanks for having me, dude. And being guest lucky it. number 13. Um, lucky number 13, all yeah. right. But we're after Halloween now, so it's safe. Oh, thank God. Here's The Rose on Dell Ave.
You've been listening to the San Diego Sessions podcast brought to you by Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. Please subscribe now on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. Theme music composed by Ed Kornhauser. Performed by Ed with Grant Fisher guitar, Harley Magzino bass, Ian Tordella saxophone, and Charles Weller drums. If you'd like to be a guest on San Diego Sessions, please contact us. All musical selections are used by permission of the artists. San Diego Sessions is engineered and produced by Ian Tordella at Dirty Boulevard Recording Company.